but we'll we'll get we'll just power through. We'll we'll, we'll get through this together. <clears throat> all right, include that, please, Casey. And I will. Work. I will. Um, all right, welcome to Future Left Podcast. I'm your host, uh, one of your hosts, uh, Adam, and the, here, here's the other guy. Hi, my name's Casey. Uh, you may not have heard from us in a while. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Forgotten. It's been a minute because uh, I, I had a, a Casey moved into an apartment. I had a sick How, baby. It's a house. I have a house. Whatever. Whatever. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh, you're a you're a homeowner. Well, that's going to be relevant <laughs> later, isn't it, class trader? I'm it is. I, I want to um, make sure that I'm firmly situated as, as a class <laughs> enemy. Yeah, yeah, but joining us this week on Future Left is uh, a dear friend of my former union comrade, Sersha Gallen. Sersha, welcome to Future Left Podcast. Glad to be here, Adam. Yeah, and um, just, uh, I guess, our usual business. Uh, we'd love to have your support at patreon.com slash future left. Uh, rate us on iTunes and stuff. That's super important. Um and uh, yeah, we are hopefully going to be on a regular schedule now that uh, now that my baby will never be ill again, and uh, Casey will never uh, have a never move have again. To, yeah never have to move again because everything's perfect in the housing industry. Um, yes. So I guess let's just get into what we wanted to talk about. There's been a lot of uh, housing news. Um, so, Sersha, in uh, five words, how do you feel about the housing market? <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kidding. You don't it have to do this. It must be uh, destroyed forever. <laughs> I, Perfect. I, I was going to say, feel free to say the word kill and I'll beep it out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, seriously, it's like the housing market as it exists right now is sort of in this slow rolling and like increasingly quick rolling process of uh massively displacing a huge number of people from their homes who have built up like rent debts mm. over the course of the pandemic uh real estate prices are skyrocketing uh the price of building materials and therefore of like new construction is also skyrocketing um speculation is yeah. absolutely rampant leading to uh like uh just general massive investment demand in real estate that is uh inherently in tension with the need of people for housing and housing that they can live in um i think and i know you, I, I know you agree with me that uh what we need to move towards is a system where housing is provided as a service as a social good for people to live in and not as an investment asset and unfortunately i have to say that uh right now the, the housing market is moving further and further away from that that being yeah. said as well we're going to talk about today uh there are some very very inspiring uh, movements pushing back on that yeah. But the housing market sucks. Yeah, for sure. And, and, I, and I think it's I think it's also important uh, to mention that when we talk about how housing should be provided as a as a public good uh, under the under our current system, um, anything that resembled that would probably be nefarious and wielded uh, for nefarious ends. So this this also requires quite extensive systems change, right? Or maybe, I would I mean, say 
the when we're talking about public sector housing provision, the the, the way that I think about it is that the process of actually creating a decommodified social housing infrastructure is one that's really never going to complete until we have had systems change. Like we're not going to have a, a situation where uh, the state starts building right. a huge number of houses uh, and like cutting out private interests right. um, and have the balance of power remain like between classes be exactly the same as it is. The social housing right. and any progressive changes to tenants' rights, other laws around the housing market are going to come out of social movements that are going to fundamentally change the balance of power between labor and capital, tenants and landlords, so on and so forth. So, right. like, um, I think that looking at, like, what would it look like if Donald Trump built a bunch of public housing or what would it look like if <laughs> uh, whatever, or what would it look like even if Joe Biden built a bunch of public housing is kind of irrelevant because the only situation in which they're going, which anyone is going to do that is uh, where either those people have been pushed into it by gigantic movements on the street or such movements have taken power, whether through elections or otherwise. Right. That, that was, I guess, I guess that was my, my, my point that I was trying to get into is that the, the change is going to, out of necessity, have, it's going to have to be holistic. I, I, I don't think that we should use like our perceptions of where politics are now to sort of like constrain our vision for what housing should be and how it should be provided. Um, right. There is a really great specific example of this with the Enteignung uh, Deutsche Wohnen campaign, which I know we're going to be talking about. I don't know if you want to like move into it here, but like they have this really, really interesting vision of like how they want this housing to be governed and what they want the sort of governance structures and systems to be around it that uh, are not how public housing has been done in Germany before, but are what like you're trying to achieve through a movement. Well, I mean, I, I definitely want to get into that because I it sounds like honestly, you know, we wanted you to come on, Sasha, because we know you, you you know a lot more about these things than we do. Um, but I it, it sounds a lot more developed than I would have guessed. I do want to spend a little bit of time talking about our current housing system, especially like you indicated that you feel like it's heading, you know, in the United States, we should say more toward financialized and more toward, I don't know, um, a kind of roulette board for a certain type of people, but not for people like uh, us or probably anyone that would care to listen to this podcast. But um, so I, I feel like there's been a lot of, well, I, I it's almost, it's kind of, I pause to know where to begin, but I guess maybe one place we should begin is that the eviction moratorium, I believe, recently ended, and it ended under um, uh, a Democrat. Uh, it was begun under a Republican um, administration, probably one of the most reviled Republican administrations in memory, at least uh, in the, the popular imagination, I think. Um, and uh, now under, you know, uh, the Democratic administration, it is coming down and evictions 
will resume. So what is, it seems like, you know, we want to talk about, and I, I'm sure we will uh, talk about this public housing initiative in Berlin, um, but and, and frankly, an expropriation measure, which is pretty awesome. But um, I, you know, here in the United States, it, we we it feels like we're much more in crisis mode, right? There are uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people under threat and a threat of eviction right now. You know? Yeah, absolutely, um, and. Uh, the first thing that I think uh, we should say when starting this is that there was never a universal eviction moratorium in the United States. Um, mm. Some other countries had universal eviction moratoriums and states and uh, cities in the United States had universal eviction moratoriums. But the federal eviction moratorium um, that um, has existed under the CDC for a very long time, uh, only applied to, uh, first of all, people who submitted a CDC declaration, which um, was available to people who met certain conditions, which were, uh, the good thing about it was that you could self-attest to them, which means that there was less bureaucracy involved. but. There were a lot of like scary legal language that people would worry about that could potentially expose people to liability, which you had to agree to in order to potentially be uh, covered by this moratorium. There were also judges who just actively ignored it through, throughout its entire existence. Now, what has happened recently? Um, so the federal eviction moratorium was um, allowed to like was placed under this CDC authority and the Supreme Court uh, with its 6-3 uh, conservative majority uh, stated that it basically thought that this moratorium was unconstitutional but that it was going to give the Biden administration until um, like the end end date, which was like very soon in the future, to sort of wind it down. Uh, the Biden administration attempted to reimpose a uh, slightly more cut back moratorium in areas with high rates of uh, COVID. And it was immediately, like a week or two later, uh, also struck down by the Supreme Court and um, hasn't been revived since. Now, Obviously, in one sense, you can say that, well, it was the Supreme Court that struck down the eviction moratorium and the Biden administration attempted to administratively uh, like reimpose it and they their hands were tied. But the fact is that uh, the Supreme Court never said in any of its decisions that the legislative eviction moratorium would be unconstitutional. Um, the solution that a lot of people have been saying the whole way through would have been to uh, pass a more comprehensive and uh, like firmer eviction moratorium through Congress, where there is a democratic majority in both houses. Now, obviously, there are moderates there, but I think that they could have tried a lot harder to... Moderates and reactionaries. Yeah, moderates and reactionaries. <laughs> Um, and 
like really a lot of this um is just made all the more disgusting by the fact that um like even money which has been appropriated for uh helping people with their rents has been so means tested so like bureaucratically cordoned off um and denied to so many tenants that a lot of cities and states have just not been spending the money um so even though uh there was all of this sort of high talk about well we we're going to be able to stop the eviction war because uh, we've spent all this money on helping people a lot of people haven't been able to get that help um uh, some of us tried uh during the pandemic to uh make the case for uh universal cancellation of rents and mortgages uh during the pandemic uh representative omar introduced legislation to do that but sadly they went with a different course so rent debts built up and but sersha think of the small mom and pop landlords across this country uh you i know, know. <laughs> uh, Sersha, Sir, Sir, I'm starting to think that there's a problem uh, in America that we uh, that, that we try to make uh, businesses out of everything, even stuff that people need. Has anyone has anyone talking about this? Um, what is the American dream if not to own your own house and then own another house and then take someone's paycheck in exchange for access to it? Yeah, I mean, um, this is. But this this really is the thing. Um, like we have a housing market which is um, structured as a way for landlords and financial institutions um, to make gigantic profits, and right. um, the crisis such as it existed uh, was that for a long period of time, uh, people had like incomes that were so disrupted that they weren't able to pay and um landlords weren't taking in nearly as much rent as they previously were and that sort of posed the question of like who's going to pay for this uh are landlords going to just lose out because that rent wasn't paid uh is the government going to come in and cover some of this uh or are tenants going to be sort of put into this debt peonage in order to pay it back yeah. and the answer is uh that they sort of ended up landing on is the landlords will not be allowed to uh take any losses uh tenants will pay back a huge amount of it and the government will sort of uh haphazardly step in enough to like have a fig leaf for allowing evictions to resume but uh not enough to prevent big eviction crisis around the country um now what's going on right now as well is that um with the sort of uh quote-unquote recovery from the pandemic going on uh, a very very large uh private equity companies and uh just like gigantic pools of capital have decided that the way that they're going to make a bunch of money is by buying up essentially every single uh single family home that's coming onto the market in america 
um, which is obviously bidding up prices um, yeah. and also and building material. Um, yeah, yeah uh, building materials and also um, just generally uh, like making it so that um, we have a more concentrated and uh, like large institution dominated housing market. Um, which presents a lot of challenges. Uh, these are like big, powerful companies. They're uh, they've got a lot, a lot of lobbying influence, and uh, they're going to want to maximize the value of their investments in a very ruthless and rigorous way. Which, yeah. in all of the neighborhoods that they're buying things up, is going to mean that they're going to want home values in those areas to go up, which will lead to gen like pressure for gentrification and uh, a lot of racial and uh, racist, I would say, uh, practices are going to end up being encouraged by this, as well as just general uh, pushing out of tenants, the foreclosures of homeowners and so on and so forth. Yeah. How do we um, incentivize solutions like the moratoriums? As, as I mean, I know that that's like the that's such a basic starting level solution is, you know, hey, don't in, in America, we do things a little different because anytime there's a crisis, we always put all of the uh, weight on the people less equipped to deal with it. The poorest people, the people with the least power. Uh, so like if you want to incentivize something like moratoriums, what you're incentivizing against is, like you said, the incredible lobbying power of, of these major financial interests. It's, it's almost as if incentivizing isn't isn't the answer. It's almost like a way a way of approaching. I mean, the only way to do it really is like I can tell you ten different policies on the spot that would make things hugely better for tenants and uh, stop gentrification. The uh, eviction moratorium is the simplest one, um, but cancellation of rent, uh, the um, like providing aid to tenants in a less means-tested and bureaucratic way, uh, like there's all sorts of things that you could do. But when you're talking about like how do we incentivize these things to actually happen? I mean, the real real answer is that people need to get organized. Don't give the politicians incentives. Yes, that, that's what I was getting at. There haven't been many, if any, uh, jurisdictions that have done this, but I do know a lot of tenants who have tenant associations that uh, came together, went on rent strike, and ended up having all or part of their rent cancelled uh, by their landlord. Uh, so... I've also seen uh, like uh, social movements make change through political organizing. Uh, it didn't last very long, but the only reason why the eviction moratorium got extended for a couple weeks as it was, was because Cory Bush camped out on the steps of Congress and created a huge media circus that captured a lot of national attention. And the Biden administration decided to respond to that. So uh, yeah. 
like in the lot, like in the medium to long run, what's going to change the balance of power is uh, like actual base building, tenant organizing, yeah. um, and power. in the short run, uh, mobilizing what we can to demand whatever changes that we can get. Um, no, I mean, it, it's it's very bizarre because I think, like you said, there's there's a lot of concentration in the housing market and there's like um, there's like phenomenons like the iBuyer, there's like Zillow that's and, and, and other types of things like that. I even read this ridiculous article about a startup called Picasso, but it's spelled bad. Um, not like it's a it's a reference to the painter but it's spelled incorrectly so uh it's written it's it's written like like uh, picasso did faces yeah um (laughs) no that was a funny joke that i I yeah yeah, i got it um but uh it seems to me that like the part of the game right now and maybe this has always been the case to some degree but there are large buyers who um which we've, as we've seen in, for instance, um, ride sharing, that it makes more sense to um, b- basically try to monopolize the market and and become the market in the way that some tech unicorns like Amazon, for instance, became. And uh, you know, it in part of that investment, part of that calculus <clears throat> is to take a loss right now in the sense, uh, in the hopes that you will monopolize the market. And basically have no competitors and be, um, you know, king of the mountain, as it were, which is really frightening in terms of uh, when it comes to housing. But is I, I've seen a few articles about it. Do you do you feel like that's a kind of new phenomenon, or do you think that like that kind of tendency has kind of always been there in the real estate sector, and maybe maybe it's just on a different scale now? Yeah, I would say that it. It is something that's happening on a different scale. Um, like we haven't seen the like both geographical and quantitative extent of uh, mass purchasing by large financial institutions of uh, housing that is then rented out. But that being said, I don't want to like overrate um the impact of concentration either because it is something that is like an emerging problem but there have always been big landlords and also the solution to uh the problems in our housing market are not to break up big landlords and get back to the nice mom and pop um (laughs) like this is an issue but the way that we come out through it is to demand socialization and to organize tenants uh, to push back against their landlords, whether they're small or large, uh, find the effective strategies to uh, change the balance of power in housing away from one where tenants exclusively have like they get a price that is determined by the market and they sort of only choose housing as consumers and move to one where uh, tenants have unions and can organize and collectively bargain. Um, And I think that when we 
get to that stage, then you start seeing the nucleus of organizations which can really push for um, not just uh, lower rents or improved services, but also uh, changes of ownership and changes of control um, to demand that uh, housing on mass is transferred to the public and the residents, uh, tenants in those apartments uh, have strong control over what goes on in their housing um, as well as um, like investment and uh, services provision and the profit is taken out of the equation. Um, so I don't think that like the way that we get out of this is either to return to everyone being an atomized homeowner or to return to small mom and pop landlords. Cause I don't think that uh, the first of those things mass home ownership is something that is really possible for us to go back to um, or necessarily desirable. Cause I think that it had the uh, mass home ownership uh, in the sort of like private privatized way has had a really negative and a damaging impact on our politics in terms of uh, creating this class or or like strata of uh, people who have this like really strong state in the housing market um, and this is massively incentivized the white upper middle class people in America to for reactionary politicians the sort of birth of the suburbs Mm-hmm. And when it comes to like mom and, mom and pop landlords, quote unquote, like mom and pop landlords have never really been the majority, uh, have never really owned the majority of pets. Um, they may be the majority of landlords, and this is like a talking point that they will put out, but large landlords own lots and lots and lots of housing units and typically end up. Um, like having a very, very large share of the rental housing stock by themselves. And also small landlords can be some of the most and, uh, nickel and diming uh, yeah. actors out there. It reminds me of like, um, you, you know, in terms of I, I, like when I was a bartender, I worked at like a, a big corporate chain and then I worked at like a locally owned bar and like, <laughs> like the, you're, the the owner of the bar being nearer to you didn't make the exploitation like more sanitary or it didn't make it like you know in a way like the larger corporation like was more concerned about labor law and uh things like that and certain regulations they were much more legally minded whereas the uh, more like local um boss was was definitely uh, less concerned about such things. Uh, um, it reminds me kind of of that dynamic. And and also the, the, the situation that, that's like normal here anyway, that where the thing to do is you move out from your parents' home, you get your own house. Like that's, that's the goal. Everybody should do that. That it's so normalized here as like, that's the, like if you're, if you're in your thirties, uh, you know, especially if you hit 40, you're, you're still living in apartments. Like, there's an amount of shame, I think, that we're told we're, suppo- we're supposed to feel. That That is all very synthetic and, and new. That whole thing is very uh, constructed. 
Uh, we don't, I guess we don't always realize that though. It's a very uh, artificial, unsustainable. It's a creation of the post-war border. Right, and, exactly. And um, like FHA loans <laughs> and um, like the white picket fence suburb. Right. Uh, the two and a half kids thing like it's this uh extremely racialized heteronormative yeah, yes, version yeah, of the american yes. dream my wife is from india and like every they live in like uh multi-generational extended family households everyone helps raise the children you've got multiple incomes like when you're there and you're in it when you're first there you're like oh this is weird but then the more you're in it you're like this makes a lot more sense and it seems like a lot more of an organic sensible way for human beings to live yeah and uh like the like the truth is that uh housing should not be something that is like a mechanism of social control exactly um, yeah, sure. like we should not like if you like in the like housing futures that i want to see like in the socialized housing futures that i want to see if you want to uh live in a house and like with your monogamous partner and have kids there, I, that's no bones off my back. But um, I also don't think that uh, we should design uh, all of our buildings and all of our communities to serve exclusively that family structure. Sure. Um, yeah. And like there should be room for both other uh, cultures that may have like different traditions of uh, families, but also uh for uh new forms of family structure and things that are being created by queer and trans people to live together in communities that might look quite different from the, new, the traditional nuclear family sure um, i didn't mean and, i didn't i didn't mean to yeah. i didn't i mean to imply no, no. that like the heterosexual I like i okay yeah i didn't mean to imply that that was the optimal i just meant that a multi-person household makes a lot more sense than the atomized way that we do it that's what i was saying yeah, sorry. absolutely. And I, I wasn't trying to say any otherwise. I'm just, um, I don't know. I think that it, like, when we talk about this stuff, we can sometimes, um, like, I, th I, I think that we forget just how much the way that we do housing shapes uh, our culture and our society and is shaped by the prevailing norms around those things. And I think that, um, yeah, uh, like multiple different, uh, like ad adult people who are not necessarily in a like marriage relationship with each other living in the same household is something that I think you'd see a lot more of, yeah, um, yeah. or at least that there are more like shared spaces and services that would exist in a less atomized and uh like more uh communal structure you know i think that it would be really nice to have communal kitchens where you can talk to your neighbors i think it'd be right, really right, nice yeah. to have more spaces where the kids can play with each other rather than everyone worrying about them uh, getting kidnapped and demanding cops out on the streets. Right, right. Making making yeah. play, making play dates and having like a 
ca- calendar for your kids' scheduled play and stuff. Well, I mean, maybe we should like th- like kind of transition to talking about what like you know you you mentioned like the the kind type of housing system you would prefer. I know that I've read a little bit about um, uh, some some alternative models that have existed, but I I, I know in like the um, in the Soviet Union, uh, not that <laughs> the Soviet Union is my optimal vision for uh, you know uh, uh, post capitalism, but there, but there are some things that absolutely yeah housing developments that were at like genuinely motivated desire to have people uh living together in uh more like thick and stable communities and and not and not alienated from each other yeah which i think is really like the the uh especially this is especially the case in the housing developments from khrushchev onwards yeah um where like you started to see the real like mass construction of uh, public housing developments in the USSR and like a significant increase in both the quality and um, volume that were being built. And, um, you know, there was a lot of um, it, like inside the Soviet Union at the time, uh, people who would make jokes about like, oh, well, they're all sort of, they all look the same and they all um, like whatever, but it, it wasn't like bad quality housing. It was pretty good quality housing. And the reason why um, a lot of it looked quite similar is because they were trying to build a lot of different sort of communal uh, housing developments that had these like social spaces and had uh, amenities for people to share with each other had places where people could exercise and um, have kids be educated and so on and so forth. Um, Now, were there a lot of problems with it? Absolutely. Um, And um, there were issues with the, like, poor transit links between uh, these developments and the rest of the cities or between uh, one community and another. Um, I think that one thing that we can really, really do a lot better uh, if we're sort of building something new is to try to make sure that uh, we have both like uh, communal structures on a like hyper local, like building by like building by building or like neighborhood by neighborhood way, but also that we have connections between uh, the entire city so that people can get from place to place easier. the the broader question seems to come down to like the like this notion of urban planning which we 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 ostensibly have in the United States but when i hear planning as as a as a dirty red i get excited <laughs> right um, but like uh but that's that's really not the type of you know the planning, uh, who it's done by, and who it's done for, and and how it's done is very different. We plan for oppression. <laughs> yeah, 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 and maximize exploitation. Um, so, yeah, the first thing is that uh, urban planning, such as it is in America, the, like when we usually talk about it, it is uh, permissive planning. So it is like what kind of uses you're allowed to do on this piece of land that you may or may not own. 
Um, so it's the, it's, it's the illusion of free of freedom, but it's yeah, there's yeah. like it's, it's like, there's you like a can, ton of like, boundaries. You, you own this piece of land. This land is zoned only for single family housing, so you can only build a single family house here, right? And it has to be within these standards and whatever. And that like when we talk about like urban planning in the United States, a lot of it is that type of thing. Your house has to be this many feet back from the street. Mm. Um, you can have this many people living in a house here. That, that, that type you're of thing. Not allowed to have chickens in your backyard. <laughs> at, at, me, me and Adam are reading these articles about like even the most socially conscious urban planner reading about how dismal their fucking job is given what they run up against and like the little concessions they try to, or the like the little amount of wiggle room they try to include for It was just, I, I was like, they're trying so hard and literally getting very little. Yeah. Well, th- th- this is the issue of, uh, trying to be a like good hearted and socially conscious bureaucrat <laughs> in a capitalist state. Yeah. Um, like ultimately uh the powers that be in society are the owners of capital and um they will make themselves known very very quickly both through the law through politics and uh through the finance and investment if they don't like what you're doing that that being said we shouldn't view planning as a dirty word uh, there are people who look at the state of urban planning in the United States right now, and they say, well, we could just, why don't we just get rid of that? Because it's it's not doing any good right now. Um, and they're right in some ways. Uh, planning has a history in the, uh, urban planning in the United States is a history of being used for disgustingly racist Racism, purposes. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and creating some environmentally and socially unsustainable and anonymizing communities. And that's absolutely true. They consciously, intentionally created this type of society. But I don't think that deregulating things now is um, going to uh, change things anywhere near as quickly as we need to for the climate crisis that we have or to create justice for people um who have been harmed by the existing system i think that um we need to look to a broader definition of planning and here adam's eyes should like light up because uh, yeah I, I i am talking more about like uh reclaiming the notion that uh like we as a collective uh the people should take a great interest in uh ensuring that cities and towns uh across the country are having housing that is built uh to serve people in a ecologically sustainable way with good transit links to everywhere good amenities communally focused and that it is uh, affordable uh, to everyone or provided for free even. Um, And when we get to that, um, I think that like working backwards from like, that's where we want to get, I don't think that we can do that without really heavy planning in our economy. I mean, I think it gets to like the broader like question 
you know, as you're, as you're saying, it's, it's like what actually is democracy? Because I feel like Americans think that they own, they have like some sort of monopoly on, uh, you know, adjudicating what is and is not democratic. Um, and and it, it, it feels constantly like so laughable that the society we live in right now where we have virtually no control and no input or say over anything but the most kind of artificial and mundane um, uh, types of uh, issues and, and, and decisions, the, the notion that this is right now in the United States is actually existing democracy, much less any kind of progressive vision. I mean, like imagining a system where working people actually can have some degree of control over their local um, uh, environs and their local uh, kind of it, it, it goes beyond the question of housing, right? But like transportation of, uh, of uh, um, when you tell people like, and there there is this really, really insidious way in which when the only power that is given to people to plan their communities is, well, you can either do racism or not. Um, <laughs> have a quite racist society, like, um, it's very easy to then turn around and be like, well, some of these places did a run. Um, but that isn't what democracy is about. Um, like, I... I know a lot of people in America do think that they live in a democracy, but I, I can certainly tell you that, like, tenants who are getting evicted by their landlords don't feel like they have control over their lives. Sure. Um, yeah. Like, people who are being foreclosed on uh, because they got into negative equity on a home that they were sold with a predatory mortgage don't feel like they're in control over their lives. Um and on the other end, I can say that, like, some of the people who have felt the most empowered that I have met are people who are engaged in union organizing and actions, tenant union organizing and actions. Um, yeah. Like, the seeds of that future democracy aren't found in um, fucking... Joe Manchin's uh, latest statements about uh, deficit reduction. It's people uh, setting up WhatsApp threads with their neighbors to talk about the fact that uh, the cockroach problem in their apartments, which they're uh, all getting eviction notices for, uh, is just getting worse. And uh, talking about going on rent strike to get their landlord to uh, give them better to like uh, maintain their homes and to allow them to stay there. Um, it's people fighting back against gentrification, fighting back against exploitation by their bosses. Um, it's, it's no mistake that in our society, like white people in gentrified neighborhoods are, uh, they get signals from our society that, oh, you know, the people of color that you see in your in your newly gentrified neighborhood, they are dangerous. Or people who are evicted from their homes and have to live on the street, they're, they're dangerous, they're criminal. You know, we malign the people in our society who have had the most direct exposure to how undemocratic our society is because we have to discredit their those experiences. I mean, that that's that's no... 
I mean, I know I'm saying something that we all take for granted, but I'm just being reminded that that's, that's not by accident that those people are the villains of our society. It's not, it's not by accident. And also it is designed in such a way that the message is consciously propagated to people that uh, solidarity between working class tenants is impossible across differences. So, um, an incredibly common thing that you see in um, major cities, hot housing markets where gentrification is really, really active is that you have uh, one group of people um, who are sort of middle income uh, being pushed out of a previously middle income neighborhood into a previously low income neighborhood. Um, And uh, the narrative being put, pushed out there that those individuals are, quote unquote, the gentrifiers and um, that the people who are gentrifying the neighborhoods aren't the real estate investors who are trying to get a profit out of it. But the thing is that like those people were pushed out of a different place beforehand. There are right. like waves and waves of this that happen. Yes. And the only way that... Um, you can actually create um, a force that's capable of fighting back against that is if people who are renting, who are uh, like in this exploitative relationship with the landlords and the real estate moguls um, band together and say that this has to stop and that the community has to have control over land and housing, um, that doesn't mean that people shouldn't be like conscious of the fact that uh, like there's a community that has lived there for a long time and is being pushed out. That absolutely should be something that everyone is conscious of. But uh, if you are living in a neighborhood that is gentrifying, you should like, there is nothing wrong with you trying to stand in solidarity with the people in that neighborhood and trying to fight to organize and push back against the people who are pushing your neighbors out they're your neighbors right so uh it's this like narrative that is clinically designed to be anti-solidaristic in a way that pits blame for social problems on different groups of working class people tells one group that the other group is at the same time a threat to them, but also um, like people who they should feel guilty to, but that they shouldn't talk to because right. uh, that might be like too awkward for them because they're a gentrifier and tells those people that they shouldn't try to, uh, and tells the people who are being pushed out that uh, if you try to talk to anyone who's new to your neighborhood, that like, these are invaders rather than people who are being pushed out of their yes. previous homes because their rents went up six I, months I've, ago. I, I've heard I've heard li- a lot of liberals say like, "Don't go into uh, you know neighborhoods, you know people of color neighborhoods if they're if they're right next to you because you're going to be invading their uh, spaces. They don't want you there. They they don't." And it's like that 
that only that is only an enemy of solidarity that that mindset that's like it's like it's like when you work in an environment where like management gets real worried about people becoming friendly with each other and you know it's like the boss saying that the people in the front of the office working on computers shouldn't be talking to the people loading crates into the truck at the back back of the house uh uh front of house back of house stuff in restaurants like there's Endless yes. examples of this. Now, there is now to be clear. If you're someone who's moving into one of these neighborhoods, especially if you're Christian, but just just in fucking general, there are you do have some individual responsibilities. Like, first of all, don't fucking call the cops on your neighbors. Yes, yes. <laughs> like, absolutely. I'm like, um, I I doubt that anyone listening to this podcast is. Uh, calling the cops on their neighbors but if any of you are you do not do that yeah Um, yeah, i'm not (laughs) stop it stop it uh if you do that people can call you whatever they want (laughs) yes yes yeah uh yeah go like go um, maybe 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 talk to your neighbors see if they need help see if there's something be a person uh, you know yeah uh, try to get to know them and hear what their issues are because they might well right. be very similar to the issues that you have. Exactly. And yeah, you might be able to work out something together that'll help you advance your shared interests in a way that not only can be like really economically beneficial to you, but it'll also feel really fucking empowering. Collective right. action so, does that. No, I, I just want to come back to what you said, you know, um, uh, the the question about like democracy and like someone that's being uh, evicted or foreclosed on, they don't feel like this is a democracy. The flip side of that, and maybe this isn't just me uh, having kind of a, a sick uh, uh, imagination, but if you put your sh- put your your yourself in the shoes and pants and shirt of you know the the, the <laughs> landlord that is also in the eviction court or the the person the you know the ceo of jp morgan chase or or any of the other people that are just ruining the the world and society as we know it um d- d- it's hard for me to believe that they think we live in a democracy you know they're literally called landlords no 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 they having been in some hearings around this stuff they really want you to call them housing providers yeah don't do that (laughs) no (laughs) yeah you're right they're under no illusion it's democracy and in fact these are the people that will brag like listen hey this isn't a democracy okay it's like um i'm in charge it's like rich people insisting you call them people of means or something some some bullshit i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna call i'm gonna call them people of the wall (laughs) What's that mean? I the, don't know. What, the, what, what um, could it mean? So, I because mean, I, I, I don't know. I uh, there one article and it was the one about Picasso, which is this. Basically, it's like a um, and a way to reinvent timeshares, where like eight people own oh, own like a, a fancy house in Malibu yeah. or in the Napa Valley. Oh, I remember this. I remember this fucking story. And it was it's it's it was insane to read because it was li- like at first I I wasn't really aware of what was happening in the article and uh you meet like the mayor of Malibu who's really against this. He thinks it's going to ruin his community. And then you realize yeah. Uh, later in the article that he himself is like a real estate agent and a, like yes. a 
and like he's just he's but he just doesn't want what he's actually concerned about is not that you know uh the the kind of perversion of you know the housing market in such a way but no what he's concerned about is like these grubby middle class people uh having yeah. a, a scrap of a house in malibu and he doesn't want them uh coming into uh his town and uh and it's it's very much like the you know the the godzilla meme of like when he's fighting mothra it's like let them fight or whatever but uh what was so fucked up about that article is the people who didn't want this program going on were bad and also the people in charge of the program were bad not the residents but the people in charge of the program who were trying to paint it as like listen you can all be homeowners but you're not they're all they're all still it's a form of it's all still renting yeah it's all a like, like yeah they, they kept they kept saying it was homeownership it wicked wasn't i was like what are these payments they keep having to make yeah well it was it was really That's funny weird. what was really funny to me is there's a there's a moment where apparently the cops there was a police report filed because someone like uh um wrote on, at an on an online picasso listing that they would burn down any home that the app purchased in a, in a given area but like cool. well it's it's just funny because it's like like i don't know i don't really know who to hate here because on the one hand i can i can imagine a scenario where someone wants to burn down a picasso affiliated home uh uh is kind of cool but it's not in this situation it's like it's like a a rich guy that doesn't want to be bothered by slightly less rich people and uh it's just it's 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 kind of about the burning it's all about who's doing the burning for me yeah this is the whole thing it's like capitalism as an economic system does rely on these and is like characterized by these conflicts between different sectors and um, different like kinds of capital owner. Um, It needs a kind of taxonomy, which is why American racism is so useful. I think in terms of uh, and like I'm just gonna say it the whole thing as a complete system functions to reproduce and expand capital, but that doesn't mean that every every section of capital's interests are aligned along the way. Um, You know, uh, real estate developers um, often are in conflict with. You know, you know your classic NIMBY homeowner types over like very viciously over lots of things, but neither of them is like really pushing for a structural change to empower tenants or working class people. Uh, they they want the value of their capital to be maintained and expanded, and. Um, they want the state to intervene in ways that facilitate that. Um, I think it's really, really important for us to be sort of clear-eyed in recognizing that a huge amount of fluff in housing discourse, such as it is, is really just different sections of capital fighting with each other. Um, And uh, to be very uh, clear um, that like what we are aiming towards 
what is in the interests of our class is not for one section of capital to win out in this fight or another. What's really in our interest is for um, the housing market to be ended entirely and replaced with genuine democratic control um, and to sort of calibrate the measures and what our movements should be doing to whether they are helping us to achieve that or not. Like, does this move us closer to eventually expropriating all the landlords? Hopefully. Uh, I, I kind of want to um, begin to pivot a little bit. I mean, I, I we need to wrap up. I, I just have, I wanted to ask about, I'm sure you saw this article in Bloomberg that was about, um, you know, I, I don't remember the exact title, but it was like Amazon's reinventing or, or like is reinventing the factory town and it's going to be great or some, some silly type of shit. But uh, you know, obviously it recalls to uh, anyone um, with any understanding of history uh, of, of company towns, which were um, uh, as uh, from my understanding, not great. Um, but yeah, uh, it's nightmarish yeah and and it but in terms it's it's interesting to think about an article like that when we're talking about land and place and community because obviously you know even talking about like the you know the 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 khrushchev style uh housing um orientations obviously that was they they were meant to serve certain industrial and productive types of things and to just provide a space for workers to live and have a community and have, have lives and things like that. It, it, but it's interesting to think about, you know, the, the quote unquote uh, company town flipped on its head and called, you know, like the, 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 the workers burg uh, or whatever you call it. But, yeah, but um, uh, uh, one might even say the commune. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> One should say the commune, but I mean it is interesting that you see, um, you know, again the the idea does does Jeff Bezos believe that this is a democracy? Um, uh, do, you know, given the amount of money and energy he's devoted to lobbying and uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, undermining public uh, decision making and 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 public uh, regulation of of his own interests. Um, or even I know that that uh, Elon Musk, who's currently the number one richest man on earth, uh, it, it all depends on where his his Bitcoin holdings are at at any given moment, as I understand it. But uh, he he wants to make uh, near Beaumont, Texas, a kind of star city where the Tesla's uh, launch pads are. Um, there's also a place in Nevada that basically wants to hand him the keys to a given area to so that uh, Tesla can create its own uh, factory town, as Bloomberg would have it. But um, I don't know. It's it's very it's very nightmarish that I don't know. We're we're moving toward you know we, we you know we were joking earlier they're called landlords, um, but it's it's very much a kind of uh, serfdom they're reinvented. Yeah, the new feudalism. Yeah. I mean, fucking, if if anyone played the video game, it's very much like the fucking shit in the Outer Worlds. Like, okay. yeah. yeah, like your company owns your housing, um, 
provides you all of your services. Oxygen. Uh, yeah. And like <laughs> you live a life which is essentially oriented around uh making them as much profit as possible. Um like that's a terrifying potential future. I don't know how realistic it is that we would get to something that bad, but um I do know that uh I want us to move as far away from that as possible. And um just as it is possible to have communities that are entirely oriented towards uh private profit, I would like to believe that it is also possible to have communities which are oriented towards generating uh, democratic priorities and goals and building uh, cities, neighborhoods, housing, transit, all sorts of uh, municipal services uh, that we want to achieve those goals. Um, I don't think that a society where housing exists for people and not for profit is a crazy the uh, far off dream i think it's really just saying that the determining factor for what we do and what we make should be moved away from what makes private owners the most money to uh like what working people uh ordinary tenants uh want to need and what we can create together um it it's politically uh the biggest lift in the world but conceptually i don't think that it's that scary at all for people to want to see a society like that um it's just what what would what would it be like if uh we removed this uh, ever-expanding drive to expand the stock of capital and replaced it with uh, our economy, our cities, our society uh, being planned in the interests of the many. Um, And and I think bringing up our our last question, Sirsha, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about uh, what has happened in Berlin where they have, uh, you know, you've had uh, over a million people uh, Berlin turnout for the campaign expropriate uh, Deutsche Wohnen and Company, uh, which targets companies holding three thousand or more uh, apartments. And you're, you're, we're already hearing people talk about how, you know, what's the potential for this to become a template for, you know, Europe more broadly. But in in your opinion, how would you frame the the importance of of this vote? Well, um, this is the first time, certainly in my lifetime, um, and in a advanced western capitalist society that you have seen people in the over a million people in one of the capital cities of one of the uh of the single largest western european european power vote for the expropriation of the largest landlords in their city, not just Deutsche Wohnen, but also, as you say, every other landlord that has over 3,000 housing units across the city. Um, And not only that uh, these units should be nationalized, 
but that they should be brought into a form of democratic public ownership where the tenants would uh, and the tenants of the community would have uh, democratically controlled um, institutions that would uh, not be like just the uh, like pr like appointed private managers, but um, genuine sort of bottom-up uh, communal democracy and that these housing units be seized for well below market price. That's right. a really, really crucial part about this is that they, the German constitution requires compensation, but when a, a Deutsche Wohnen uh, and Teignen have said the expropriation campaign and what I think seems very credible is that it says that the nature of compensation is to be set by the legislature so it doesn't need to be at market price and what they're saying is that they should take a very very substantial haircut on account of the fact that when these uh, housing units were previously privatized that uh, they were sold off at pennies on the dollar or pennies on the Deutschmark or Euro. I don't know what, it, I forget what it was at the time. Um, so I think that um, the really, really exciting thing about this is that it's people who are um, like a strong majority, 60% of those who voted are supporting something which fundamentally goes against the basic logic of uh, market capitalism, which says that yes. Uh, the public should take over um, and govern as uh, working class tenants uh, assets which were previously held by some of the most large and powerful capitalists in their city um, and that the exchange should not be determined by uh, the free market but should instead be determined by social needs. Yeah. You know, I... I... Yeah, absolutely. And um, in closing, because I, I do have to jump off soon, um, but uh, I, I, you know, it gets to a certain point where, you know, the level of immiseration and exploitation that these people are responsible for a haircut, they should be so lucky, you know? Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. like, like goddamn. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like, oh no, you're you're you know one less yacht for you. Uh, like, uh, you're you're gonna be fine, okay? Yeah, um, they'll be but... fucking fine. <laughs> and uh, like the now, to be clear with this, um, the referendum, uh, Germany doesn't allow for binding referendums, so this is going to have to be negotiated out by the parties that will be forming the next government. I know that the the uh, left party, Die Linke, yeah. um, supports uh, yeah. expropriation as uh, proposed by this campaign. The Social Democrats oppose it. The Green Party uh, have a sort of weird middle position of some sort where they're like open to it in principle, but have the weird <laughs> concerns. Uh, obviously, the vote for it has created a lot of popular pressure uh, to do this, but... Organizing is going to have to continue, you know, um, the 
like electoral organizing is something which can be really, really valuable as a, a strategic part of an overall uh, working class movement. But it absolutely always needs to be backed up by uh, base building on the ground, by strong labor movements and strong tenant movements. And right. uh the expropriation campaign is like only one wing of the tenant movement in Berlin. That's something that they've made really, really clear in everything they've written about this. So I think that the, like they're thinking this through. They know that this is only one step in the process, but goddamn, is it an exciting one? Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, that brings us to a close on this episode of Future Left Foot. Uh, Sersha, thanks so much for coming on and joining us. Uh, it was great talking uh, about housing and uh, shitting on landlords with you for a little while. Absolutely, I I love <laughs> shitting on landlords. Um... <laughs> it's it's a great pastime. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, um, for uh, thanks so much for having me on. Absolutely, absolutely. and and you can find Sarah Gowan on Twitter. Um, pretty pr- pretty pretty uh, straightforward handle. It's just Sarah Gowan, and. Uh, uh, Find us on Patreon if you'd be so kind. If not, that's fine too. Please, um, please give us money. Please, please. Casey gets thirstier and thirstier every episode about it. Um, but uh, yeah, we'll, for Future Left, I'm Adam. And I'm Casey. Bye, everyone. Bye.